thank you, uh, Juan, first of all, for those uh, stirring words to open up today. And we're, you know, mindful of the invitation to be here today in that context and just really deeply respectful of, of um, all the families that were so deeply impacted by this six years ago. It's hard to believe it's six years ago already. Um, and Ken, thank you for that nice introduction as well uh, to CHDI. So my name is Jeff Vanderplug. I'm the <clears throat> President, Chief Executive Officer at CHDI in the Children's Fund in Connecticut. And I'm joined here by uh, Jason Lang, who will be up a little bit later, um, our resident trauma expert. So you'll learn a lot from him. He has a tremendous expertise in this area. Um, also, uh, Lisa Hogenfeld is here in the audience. If you want to raise your hand, Lisa. She's the Vice President for Health Initiatives at CHDI. Um, and so we're really, we're really glad to be here today. Um, I want to start just by kind of going through some of the disclosures. Jason and I don't have a financial or conflict of interest here today, so um, that's the conflict of interest policy and statement. I want to start by telling you a little bit about CHDI. As, as Ken mentioned, uh, several years ago, people used to refer to CHDI as Connecticut's best-kept secret, and now we have a vice president of communications who has made it her mission in life to make sure that's not the case. So all those promotional materials out there on the table, I'd encourage you to take them. She sent me here with about 5,000 flyers. <laughs> I'm like, well, how large do you think this auditorium is, Julie? Uh, there's a lot of them out there, so take 25 for your friends as well. Uh, but CHDI is a nonprofit organization. We're a subsidiary to the Children's Fund of Connecticut, which is in turn a subsidiary organization of Connecticut Children's Medical Center. So that kind of structured relationship between CCMC to the fund and also to CHDI. Uh, the work that we do is funded in part, about 20% of the work that we do is funding, funded directly by the Children's Fund of Connecticut. Um, and then the remaining 80% or so is funded by external grants and contracts, federal, state, and philanthropic. Um, DCF is one of our primary funding organizations as we operate in the area of children's mental health. We also work with a number of other child-serving state agencies across the state with the Medicaid system. Uh, we work a lot with the educational system. And you're, you'll start to see this theme emerge today as we talk about how do you create systemic change and sustainable change in health and mental health care practice in the state. And our belief, and, and I think this bears out in our experience, is that in order to do that work, it's not just having a great innovation that you can bring out to practice. You have to be working at the level of policy and system development to make sure that that innovation can actually be sustained over time. And that once we often talk about it in our office, once we step out of this initiative, we want to know that it's going to continue to go on. And so how do you create that and make sure that that happens? It's a question that we wrestle with all the time. If you want to learn a little bit more about our work, you can visit our website at chdi.org. And we also have a website uh, called kidsmentalhealthinfo.com, and that's a place that was really specifically ta tailored towards parents, caregivers, and, and educators to give them real practical knowledge and information about children's mental health um, and some uh, information about resources in the state to access mental health treatment. So we, uh, we sometimes refer to ourselves as an intermediary organization, and this is not a term that's really well-known out there in the field, but it co comes out of the implementation science field. And really, the way that we think about the work that we do is it's driven by the question of, um, and, and the research, in fact, that shows uh, a scientific, a, a research article comes out, and there's a new innovation that's developed, uh, oftentimes in an academic setting. And the average time for that innovation to make its way into clinical practice is anywhere from 15 to 20 years on average. And a good amount of research that's out there that we know works and we know is effective for improving health never makes its way fully into, into practice in pediatric primary care or in community-based children's mental health organizations or in schools where a lot of mental health treatment also occurs. 
So this concept of an intermediary organization is how can we come together across these various uh, elements and, and really bring all of this information together in a way that accelerates that timeline. We want to make sure that it doesn't take 15 to 20 years for the best science to make its way into clinical practice. So as I mentioned earlier, that means working at the state system level, uh, working at the policy level, bringing research and repackaging it in a way that practitioners can use, uh, bringing that information to the community, putting it in the hands of family advocates. It's sometimes, sometimes something that people forget about, that you can really make a lot of good change by putting good information into the hands of, of family advocacy and, and also policymakers and decision makers at the state level, whether it's Medicaid um, or state agencies who help fund and organize uh, children's health and mental health services. So that's how we see ourselves in, many of, in much of the work that we do is bridging those gaps, accelerating the timeline to bring innovation and good science to practice. So the goals for today are understand the factors that influence development and also the prevalence and signs of trauma and mental health concerns. We also uh, want to tell you a little bit more about the structure of Connecticut's behavioral health system and describe uh, some system development and integration efforts that are taking place, as well as talking with you about effective services that are available. Uh, oftentimes when we come and do these discussions, we, we hear a lot about uh, an understanding and a recognition of how much need there is in the, out there in the community, but less understanding about what effective services already exist. And there are many. Uh, there are many that do exist. Um, and so uh, we, we want to close by, by talking a little bit more and discussing with you ways that you can participate in those system change efforts, including those efforts that are related specifically to childhood trauma. Um, raise your hand if you've heard of Yuri Bronfenbrenner. Okay, we have a few who have heard of Bronfenbrenner. So it's, it's been around for a long time, but it's this notion that individual child development, you know, this, this young child in the middle, are influenced by a number of different systems. It's the genetic predispositions and family environmental factors that we all talk about. But then as you go a little bit further out, there are these other factors that also influence human development. Um, they, I, I like to use the example of considering a small town, a manufacturing town, if the plant closes down and, 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 and shuts up shop and goes um, somewhere else, think of the impact that that has on a community, the impact that that has on a school, the impact that that has on a family in terms of their economic situation, and then in turn the way that, that impacts children. So you don't often think about that manufacturing plant closing having a, uh, an impact on child development, but it really does. And all these factors working together, if you can work at all of these levels, you can have a much deeper, stronger, more sustainable impact on child development. This is a, a, a model by uh, Neil Halfon, who's a researcher out in UCLA. And what this is showing is between the ages of birth and five years old, what are the factors that impact on readiness to learn? So that's your y-axis is ready, readiness to learn, and kind of time is across your x-axis. And those are the kinds of factors, if, if you think the, about the yellow line as being about average development, um, and above that line in the green would be things that are really promoting enhanced development, and anything down in the, uh, in the red is a trajectory of insufficient development. What are the kinds of things that impact on development? So the things across the top are factors that may push down or suppress development. That might include poverty or lack of health services or toxic stress. We'll talk a lot more about toxic stress today. Then there are also those things across the bottom, those supportive factors, those uh, protective factors that can be put into place that really help enhance and push up that developmental trajectory over time and increase readiness to learn. And that includes things like parent education and emotional health and literacy 
reading to children every day, having appropriate discipline practices, having access to health, um, and having access to preschool. So if you look at those factors, you know, you can see genetic, parenting, education, social systems, you know, the whole range of influences that come into play when you're talking about impacting that child development. And so we try to work at all these levels when we think about the work that we do. As we transition here into talking a little bit more specifically about traumatic events, what are, these are some of the things that you might see in a pediatric practice or certainly in a children's mental health organization. We'll talk a little bit more about the details and some of the data coming up, but we, we have been shocked in some of the work that we've been doing, for example, in general educational settings, looking at the prevalence of trauma. And um, when we survey hundreds of kids in general education classrooms, not special education classrooms, not alternative high schools, but in regular educational classrooms, we find rates of exposure to trauma uh, as high as 50% and sometimes higher than that. The number of kids that have been exposed to at least one of these traumatic events, 50%. And as if you work in different settings, child welfare, juvenile justice, those numbers can be as high as 75, 80, 90% of kids who have exposed to one trauma. And at many times they've been exposed to several trauma, uh, traumatic events. This tells you a little bit more about exposure over the past year and the rates of for six to nine year olds, as you can see, of physical assault, almost half. Sexual victimization, 2%, 12% have been abused or neglected in that age range. 12% have witnessed violence. And as, as you get older, those, large, oh, those older age groups, those rates become even higher. And the other sobering fact in all this is that most trauma uh, is never reported. So it's very likely that these numbers are lower than the actual rates that you would see um, in, in, in reality. Um, again, about 71% of all youth by the age of 17 have experienced one or more of these uh, traumatic events in their life by the age of 17. So I think we're talking about something that's truly reached epidemic proportions. There's some, uh, some work that's been done by Bruce Perry, who's one of the scions of uh, childhood trauma out there. He just has done tremendous research in this area. And um, the top left figure shows you the brain, just the brain size between a normal three-year-old and a three-year-old who's experienced extreme neglect. So it's just the significant impact that trauma and neglect can have on something as simple as just brain size. And then in terms of brain function in the bottom right, what you see there is on the left, uh, a healthy brain. It's a PET scan of a healthy brain. It shows um, in the prefrontal cortex area, executive functioning area, um, a lot of activity. The areas in red are high activity areas. And on the right side, you see the, the PET scan of a similar, of a brain uh, of a child who's been abused. And you can see a lot of, much less activity in the frontal regions of the brain and much more activity in sort of the fight or flight parts of the brain um, and so that the, the brain research has really advanced over the years. This is just, of course, a snapshot of all the science that's available in the brain science literature. And the impact of trauma on brain development is really emerging and showing significant impact. Those of you who have heard of the ACEs, raise your hand if you've heard of ACEs. That's become a pretty popular. So that's, that's over, if I asked that question five years ago, this audience, I would not have seen as many hands, but this is, uh, data and information and science has become much more accessible over the last few years. But as you can see here, these, this, these are the kinds of things that you might expect. So think of that list I showed earlier of potentially traumatic events. And if you take a, a sample and ask, you know, how many of these events have you experienced? 
As that number goes up, the prevalence and the rates of mood disorders, anxiety disorders, substance use, impulse control also go up with it. Um, that's the, on the far right, the blue bar, if you can't see uh, to the bottom, those who have four or more traumatic event exposures have uh, rates of mood disorders, for example, of over 50%. But what's even more surprising to some people is the, the similar kinds of patterns that you see when it comes to chronic diseases. So you can see a, a similar pattern um, as the number of traumatic events increase. I mean, these are childhood traumatic events and then the rates of adult disorders. So um, the, the long-term impact of trauma on even chronic disease rates is just uh, really marked. This is another way to think about it. In a classroom of 30 students, uh, those uh, who have seven, uh, who have four or more ACEs, it's a 10 out of 30, so about a third of uh, high school sophomores and seniors in a Washington classroom who had experienced that number of ACEs. So you're going to have your classroom of 30, certainly a lot of kids who haven't experienced any trauma. You've got an equal number of kids in that classroom who've experienced four or five or six or even eight of those ACEs. And that helps to put it into context. And in the work that we do, that in, where we interface with the Department of Education and, and uh, in school classrooms, this becomes really relevant for teachers. They are really struggling with what to do around this issue. As children perceive threat, uh, they become more focused on survival. Those brain scan that I showed you earlier about the fight or flight areas of the brain that are activated in the context of traumatic events. Children are more, much more focused on survival. Their thinking can be impaired. Even their breathing and heart rate is shown to be different than children who have fewer trauma exposures. Uh, just the ever-present feeling of terror, loss of control, or hypervigilance is just a, a reality that these children are living with. Um, and just disconnection and even confusion with reality. For those of you who are working in um, primary care settings or in hospital emergency departments, probably see this on a regular basis. This is a video, I'm gonna show it to you. Um, I hope that it plays. We're gonna find out in just a moment. Um, the context here, so you know what you're looking at. This is a baby, and uh, the person holding the camera and taking the video is the mother. The mother's got a tissue in her hand, and she's playing with the baby. She's, and what you're gonna hear on the audio, assuming that this works, is uh, the mother blows her nose into the tissue. And I want you to watch the baby's reaction, because it's a good illustration of how trauma comes into play. No, maybe it's not gonna work. Oh, here we go, success. Just being adorable. 
the other thing I like about uh, the video, it, it shows you in, in, a, in a kind of a funny and a silly way the impact of a traumatic experience that I can have on a child. But the other thing I like about this video a lot that might get missed is the resilience of a child, right? It's when the, that terrifying experience of blowing the nose is removed from the situation, the baby's laughing and happy. So babies and children are resilient, and that should give us all some hope. Okay, there's that 71% of children who experience trauma by the age of 17. It's a terrifying statistic, and we all should pay attention to it. But we also should understand that brains are malleable. If you remove traumatic situations from a child's life, they do adapt, they do adjust, they do improve. And so I think that's the other thing I like about this video that can't get missed. Uh, we sometimes talk in our uh, office about um, how trauma can sometimes, and I'm, I'm not sure this is our idea, I think it's been out there in the literature, uh, but how trauma is often a little bit like dealing with an iceberg. And if those of you who saw Kate and Leo, you, you know the story of what happened with the Titanic. It wasn't that they slammed head on into the iceberg, they actually saw the iceberg coming and they turned. And as they turned, they thought probably thought they were going to miss it. We saved ourselves. But all of that material that was under the surface was what really it gashed aside into the Titanic underneath the water surface, filled up with water, and the ship sank. And trauma is sometimes the same way. Uh, what you see on the surface above the line, above the water line, you might see fighting and aggression and anger. You might see behavior problems or recklessness or risk-taking or suicidal or self-injurious behavior or substance use. Those are the things that are fairly easy to see. They're not, they're not easy to see, but they're visible. Uh, they're easily identified. Uh, but there's all these other things below the surface that are taking place with children who have been exposed to trauma that are much more difficult to assess unless you're asking a question. And so those might include things like sleep disturbances or social withdrawal, or changes in appetite, or even feelings of guilt, or terror, or hypervigilance. Um, I was talking with Ken earlier, and he said this before at our board meetings, and I, I always appreciate when he, when he shares this story, but um, he said that by serving on the CHDI board, one of the things that he's learned through one of our programs called Educating Practices is he's, he's asked a different question of all of his patients for now for the last several years. Ken, do you mind sharing what it is? Sure, the question I asked during the intro, have there been any major events that have affected you or other members of your family over the last year? For about 28 years, I never asked that question. Now that I have, I can write a book on the answers that I get from a parent with Alzheimer's moved in, our dog died, someone developed a cancer in the All of which have probably more impact on your child. So it's a really, uh, it's a really great question. It's it's open-ended and invites a, a parent to join you in in that process of um, identifying what their needs are, um, and invites a conversation that I don't think would happen if, if Ken wasn't asking that question. And um, in many ways, trauma is the same way. Um, these are the things above the line that are easy to see, and and to be quite honest with you, sometimes might lead to diagnoses that are might be helpful and effective. But it might not actually be getting to the underlying root causes of what's happening in the child's life. And as you start to uncover the kinds of traumatic experiences that are going on, um, that's when you start to do work that really is trans transformative for children and families' lives. And we're going to share a number of examples of initiatives going on in Connecticut that are really based on that um, hypothesis, that if you ask different questions, and if you're more informed about trauma and its impact on development and on behavior, 
that you're going to do better work. You're going to do more effective work. So we uh, we talk. This is a uh, we've seen this in a lot of different settings. I, I find it to be particularly transformative in schools, um, as it turns out. But changing the question from what's wrong with you to what happened to you, the second of which is the more trauma-informed question. Um, the reason I mentioned schools is one of our initiatives has to do with juvenile justice diversion. And so when we work with schools, we talk about this, asking this question differently. You ask the first question, what's wrong with you? you know, why can't you behave in my classroom? What's wrong with you? You're going to be much more likely to attribute that behavior to something else. You're probably going to be much more likely to call a law enforcement officer or your school resource officer, and that child may end up um, inappropriately involved in the juvenile justice system. But if you kind of reframe that question into what happened to you, you're going to start to elicit different kinds of responses from families, much in the same way that Ken was talking about in his pediatric practice. It's simple, but it's, it's pretty powerful. It's certainly not the only thing you do to create a trauma-informed environment is asking one different question, but it kind of illustrates exactly the difference. I mentioned earlier that we work at the systems level. I'm not going to read through this whole definition of what a system is, um, but the components of a system include children and families who are the recipients of care, the funders who organize and pay for it, school systems, community-based providers, policymakers and legislators, advocates, research and evaluators. This is why we're busy every day, because if you're going to create sustainable change, you really need to be working at all these levels. Um, it's not enough to just have an effective practice. You have to make sure that practice reaches the people who need it the most. And in order to do that, we really believe you have to be working at all these levels. So I always, I've asked the question, working particularly in the children's behavioral health system in the state of Connecticut, do we have a children's behavioral health system? And it's kind of a provocative question. A lot of people will say, well, of course we do, the children's behavioral health system. But I, I put this figure up here because it helps to illustrate how difficult and, and challenging that system can be at times. So you'd love to be able to draw a straight line from the left side of this uh, slide all the way to the right side. If you have a child and family who has a behavioral health need, You'd love to be able to ask, have them access the provider network that's out there, hospitals and school-based practitioners and community-based providers and private practitioners. Love to be able to draw a straight line. But in reality, what you have is all these different state agencies who have some piece or another of the children's behavioral health system and the alphabet soup that comes with it. So a lot of what's in the middle there are state agencies who are all doing tremendous work and ter terrific work, the question is whether that work is as well coordinated as it needs to be in order to really have a well-functioning system. And think about what it's like if you're a family member who has a child with trauma exposure and symptoms, and you're trying to navigate this system. The, the services that you receive differ tremendously based on which one of these bubbles you enter this, uh, the system. If you enter through the Department of Social Services up at the top, your experience with the system may be very, very different than the child who enters in through CSSD, which is a judicial branch's court support services division, which oversees behavioral health service delivery for justice-involved youth, or from through the Department of Public Health, the bottom, or from the Office of Early Childhood for children who are, who are younger, from birth to age three or five or so. Um, your experience is very different, not to mention all the different, uh, towards the right there, the differences that exist by virtue of the kind of health insurance that you have. What do we want then? We want um, a system in which youth with behavioral health needs are identified early and have access to appropriate care. 
Too often, uh, children with behavioral health needs who have started to exhibit some symptoms um, early in life may not be diagnosed and start receiving any treatment until they're 13 or 14 or 17 years old. So we want a system where those needs are identified more early, earlier and that uh, access to appropriate care is available to them. We also want services to promote equity and work to reduce behavioral health disparities that impact particularly disadvantaged populations. We have, have a soft spot, spot in our hearts in the work that we do for services that exist outside of the clinic. So how can we bring services to the community, to the family's home, to the school where children are located and make them more easily accessible? Because we know that the harder it is for families to access services, the less likely they are to use them. And that access to services varies tremendously based on socioeconomic status, based on race and ethnicity, based on the type of insurance that you have. And so how can we break down some of those barriers and really make an impact on racial ethnic disparities that we see in the healthcare system? We want a system where a full service array is available and where youth and families are matched to the appropriate treatment that's based on their needs, not where they live or the, the bubble that they happen to come into the system through. We also want to make sure that providers are trained and supported to provide those services using the best available science um, for effectiveness, which we've talked about already. Uh, it's also not enough just to deliver services. We really believe that we need to collect data on the effectiveness of those services provide that data and information back to practices to help them inform their service delivery and continually improve their service delivery practices. And, and of course, we want uh, the best possible outcomes for our kids. That's what they deserve. Um, and we want expenditures that are closely tracked and monitored to ensure that the system is effective as it can be. We did some work a few years ago uh, on the Children's Behavioral Health Plan, which was launched in 2014. And although the work is slow, we are making progress to make some of these principles that we're talking about here a reality. And um, as our board members know and others who have been involved in our organization, when you're doing systems level work and trying to create sustainable change, it's a long-term process. It's not something that happens in the short term. It takes time. So uh, Jason reminded me that when Oprah comes up, that means it's his turn. So uh, here's Oprah, so I'll invite Jason Lang up. Thank you very much. All right, um, so thank you, Juan and, and Ken, for the invitation. Um, Jeff talked a lot about um, trauma, uh, how prevalent it is, how harmful it is to children, um, and, and how it really is a, um, a public health crisis um, in a lot of ways because it does have such a detrimental impact on, on, on health across the lifespan. So I get the, um, the privilege of talking about the good news, which is that, that there actually is quite a bit that we can do um, to address trauma. And um, Oprah is up here because she attributes uh, much of her success um, to the trauma that she experienced as a child, including being um, severely sexually abused at the age of nine um, and a number of other traumatic events that she experienced. Um, and there's this idea in the, in the field of traumatic stress of um, post-traumatic growth which is you know, kind of the idea that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and that um, children and, and adults can actually um, recover from exposure to trauma with support and, and sometimes with mental health services, um, and actually uh, function at a higher level than they were um, prior to the trauma um, if they are uh, supported and receive the services that they need. So um, I'm gonna touch on um, a uh, couple more systems things, and then uh, most of what I want to talk about is kind of like, what do you do? Um, what do you do after today? Um, have any of you heard of this idea of a trauma-informed system, trauma-informed care? Anybody? 
Drum and Foreign Approach, see a few hands. Um, so these are terms that are um, really becoming um, commonplace given the, uh, all of the research on the ACEs and, um, and, and child traumatic stress. And the general idea with a um, trauma-informed system or trauma-informed care is that um, we are creating these child-serving systems to address trauma, um, not just to treat kids who experience trauma, but really more systematically to um, prevent, um, to train the workforce to understand how to respond to trauma and um, how to change organizations and systems in ways that are more um, supportive of, of children and families experiencing trauma. Um, so what I want to do is give you um, quick highlights from Connecticut. Um, you know, as Jeff mentioned, Connecticut actually is a, um, a fairly, uh, fairly advanced in terms of developing trauma-informed systems for children compared to other states. Um, now, there is still a lot of work to be done and, um, and, and a lot of areas of need, but when you compare Connecticut to most other states, um, we've been doing this for, um, for quite a while and, and make more progress. Um, so this is kind of a, um, just to highlight some of the numbers of children who've been um, uh, provided with trauma-focused um, services, been screened for trauma, staff trained. Um, this infographic is on our website if you want to take a closer look. Um, the one example I want to give of a, of a system um, is um, some work that the state um, and DCF in particular with, with help from CHDI has been doing for the past seven years um, to really try to bring these trauma-informed care uh, approaches to the child welfare system. And, you know, for all that you read about um, the child welfare system in the newspapers, um, and, and there are certainly some challenges and some, um, some tragedies that have happened um, over the years, um, the system has done a lot of work to, to try to put these principles into practice, um, including um, uh, incorporating um, pretty intensive training for all child welfare staff um, to understand and respond to trauma, implementing screening for trauma in the child welfare system, and trying to build out the array of clinical services um, for children who've experienced trauma and, and um, improve connection of uh, children with those services. Um, policy development is another area that, um, you know, when you think broadly about a trauma-informed system or program, um, changing policies to make them uh, understand or reflect the importance of trauma is, is a piece of that. Um, and with this trauma-informed approach, I would also add that um, you know, an individual person could kind of be trauma-informed if you kind of know, you know, a lot about trauma, how to respond, how it function, how it affects your job function. Um, but also a, a program can be trauma-informed. If you work in a practice, a whole organization can be trauma-informed. Um, and then a system or um, a set of connected organizations can be trauma-informed. And um, part of what Connecticut is doing is trying to actually move towards becoming a trauma-informed state in many ways, where all of the interconnecting child-serving systems that Jeff highlighted um, are each doing some work to become trauma-informed. So that's kind of a higher level. Um, and then what I want to do for the um, next few minutes is just kind of jump right down into the, um, into the weeds about, you know, as a provider, what can you do? And um, to be honest with you, after a 45-minute grand rounds, you're probably not going to be doing a lot differently. Um, but what I do want to give you is some resources for, um, uh, you know, for further kind of knowledge and, and, and use, um, because there are some things that are available um, free on the, online in Connecticut um, that, that would be um, helpful for putting this into practice. So one is um, to really educate yourself, your peers, your staff, your colleagues about child traumatic stress. And this, you know, this is a, um, you know, a good quick introduction 
but there's a lot more um, information that's available uh, publicly, freely, um, online about traumatic stress. And two resources that I um, want to highlight are the AAP Trauma Guide, um, which is a toolkit online um, uh, that has a lot of good information, and then the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. Has anybody heard of the NCTSN before? Um, the NCTSN is a SAMHSA-funded um, network of, of uh, sites all around the country that has been in um, place since about 2001, and um, its mission and function is to improve the care for children experiencing trauma across the country. Connecticut has a number of, um, of, of sites, including CHDI, um, and the NCTSN website has um, many, many resources for um, pediatrics, primary care, uh, as well as other systems like schools, child welfare, juvenile justice, behavioral health. Um, all those are free. Um, they have archived webinars as well. Um, the second thing that, um, that I would encourage you to think about is how to um, better identify children who are experiencing trauma. Um, screening is the, you know, kind of the, the standard way, um, administering a screen. Um, as Ken talked about, he has the, this one question that um, he asks of all his families, and, and there are a number of other um, screens that you can use. I will share um, one example with you. Um, but the reason that screening is so important is because um, one, of the, one of the hallmarks of trauma is avoidance. You know, when these awful things happen to us, we don't really want to talk about them. And, you know, as adults, that's true, but it's, it's even more true of children. Um, and when a child is, is the victim of sexual abuse or the victim of uh, physical abuse or um, witnesses domestic violence, in most cases, um, that, that child doesn't really talk to very many people, if anybody. And in some cases, the family doesn't want to talk about it and doesn't want others to know. There's a lot of stigma around trauma. <laughs> Um, a lot of shame and guilt, and um, and that avoidance is 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 a you know a well-known hallmark of trauma that makes it difficult for those that serve children because you know most of us don't know you know half of or more than half of what the kids we serve have experienced. So screening is um, is really one way to do that. And when you ask direct questions, um, children and and caregivers actually tend to be um, tend to report fairly accurately. Um, screening is not just about asking questions and identifying. It's really about listening and educating. And um, I would say if you're ever going to talk about trauma, screen a child for trauma, that it's really important that you not just ask the questions, but that you contextualize it and say, you know, give some explanation about why you're asking the questions. You know, what Jeff talked about, trauma affects children's health, it affects their mental health, it affects families. Um, and, and that conversation in and of itself um, can be very therapeutic for a child who's never had anybody, you know, ask them about something bad that happened or never had anybody that could sit there and listen to them and empathize with them. Um, and then the last one up here is, um, you know, for children, not all children who experience trauma need mental health services. In fact, most of them don't. Uh, most children who experience trauma with the support of a resilient of a of a caregiver um, are resilient. And you know the the video with the baby um, shows that you know when that mom's face lit up and her tissue wasn't there, you know that that child's anxiety decreased and and she was okay. Um, and that is really the biggest predictor of whether a child is going to recover from trauma is the support of a caregiver or a loved one. For those that 
do need mental health services, connecting them um, with an experienced provider who, who has expertise in trauma um, is really important. Uh, so um, just a couple other things when you are talking with families about trauma um, that are um, potential pitfalls. One is to really be transparent. Um, there are mandated reporting requirements that certainly can come into play when you're talking about trauma. And, you know, all of that should be transparent from the beginning. Um, why is it important to medical care? Uh, you know, the, the average life expectancy for people who um, smoke is about 10 years less than, than others. For alcoholism, it's, uh, I believe, about eight or nine years less. For type 1 diabetes, um, somewhere between 11 and 13 years, I believe. For children who experience six or more traumatic events, it's a 20-year life expectancy difference. Um, and so if we think about it from that public health approach, you know, that is, you know, if we had a, um, if we had a chemical that was causing a 20-year life expectancy difference in children, there would be a huge public health um, effort to try to uh, remedy that. Um, and I think that's how we need to think about trauma. Um, depend, you know, if you are in a primary care setting or you don't have a lot of time with a child, I think one thing is um, just be careful about how many details you ask about a traumatic event. It's important to get to have a discussion, and if you can have you know time for that discussion, that's um, helpful. But um, but it can be re-traumatizing to ask detailed questions about a traumatic event over and over again, um, and sometimes it happens with multiple providers. Um, the last one up here that I want to just touch on is assessing your own comfort. And these are Difficult, question, difficult conversations to have, and um, if you are not experienced um, talking to kids about trauma, it can, um, it can really throw you for a loop. In fact, even if you are experienced talking about trauma, it can throw you for a loop. And so I think it's really important that you pay attention to your own comfort and feelings, and you know, sometimes providers, even very experienced well-meaning providers, can inadvertently um, uh, show that they're uncomfortable and then that tells the child that, you know, my, my, my uh, doctor can't even listen to this or talk about it. How, you know, how can I ever say it to anybody else again? And so that initial disclosure when a child first talks to somebody is a really important uh, moment um, uh, for that child's recovery. Um, just want to very briefly mention, um, there are a lot of screens that you can use. This is one that is widely used in Connecticut. Um, it's free and available online, and um, we've, we've helped develop it um, in conjunction with a couple of, with uh, the state and with um, uh, an evaluator from Yale. Uh, you can download it down there. It has 10 questions um, that asks about, asks about trauma exposure and traumatic stress or PTSD symptoms. Um, and uh, we recently tested it in a primary care setting um, and uh, are looking at the data, but it looks like it's working pretty well. Um, that's a picture of it. Um, and if nothing else, this gives you some structure to, to even talk about trauma with a child or with a caregiver so that you have some questions to ask. Um, you know, uh, some people incorporate it as part of their routine practice, and, you know, and when you say we ask these questions of everybody, then it's less stigmatizing than you know pulling it out when a uh, for for a specific child. Um, I know I'm I'm short on time, so I am going to um, breeze through these uh, fairly quickly. Um, Connecticut has a a very robust network of um, experts who are clinicians trained in trauma-focused treatment. 
Um, trauma-focused CBT or TFCBT is really, um, you know, the gold standard of trauma treatment for children, but there are a number of other models um, that are also uh, evidence-based, have a lot of research support, um, and are available in Connecticut, um, including ARC, Match, CBITS, Target, and, and others. Um, if you ever want to find a local provider, you can go to this Kids Mental Health Info website. Um, if you have postcards that are out there, you click on Find a uh, Mental Health Provider Trained in um, Evidence-Based Practices, and then you put in your zip code and, um, you know, if, if you want, what types of practices you're looking for, and then it will show you where those providers are. Um, right now, there are uh, uh, over 100 uh, sites, look, uh, sites uh, in Connecticut that offer these services. Um, I think on, on the uh, good news side, um, the number of children who are getting evidence-based treatments and, and trauma-focused evidence-based treatments continues to rise. Um, these are evidence-based treatments are really, um, you know, rigorously tested, and and um, the clinicians that are serving that are offering them in Connecticut are um, extensively trained, and um, and you can see that they are actually getting um, very good outcomes as well. So on average. Um, that line there above the line indicates that children had likely PTSD. So at the start of treatment, um, this is for about 745 kids. The start of treatment, you know, most of those kids had likely PTSD. And after a course of um, treatment, in this case TFCBT, they were below that line, um, indicating that they likely no longer had PTSD. Uh, and we're seeing um, across these different evidence-based treatments um, very significant uh, reductions in symptoms. Um, there's other research that shows that when kids get these treatments and their PTSD um, is in remission, that they actually have uh, fewer um, uh, healthcare costs in the later year, in, in the subsequent years, um, less likely to have more intensive services like um, uh, higher levels of care, and, um, and, and uh, cost savings in terms of their healthcare over the next few years. Uh, a big piece of trauma-informed care is, um, is not just about the children, it's about uh, staff. It's about all of us. And um, working with uh, children who've experienced trauma is, um, you know, I, I mentioned it's very challenging. And I think part of becoming a trauma-informed program or agency or organization or system is really looking at how you can support the wellness and health of staff in that system. Because when you are talking uh, with children and families about trauma, you're having those conversations, um, you know, sometimes it's, it's tough to leave that at the door when you go home. Um, and it can really um, have a profound impact. And that's not a sign of weakness in any way. Um, it's just a sign of being human. And I think actually a, probably a positive sign that you're an empathic human being if uh, hearing these things uh, resonates and, and um, you know, causes some distress. So there are a number of ways and strategies that um, agencies and programs are beginning to think and, and implementing um, uh, wellness programs and, and ways of addressing secondary traumatic stress for staff. Um, I want to leave you with some resources. These should be on your handouts as well. If you want to learn more, I encourage you to go to um, all of these, I think, are free uh, to access. Um, and I think we'll stop there.